What was 2020 like for liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I review the year with Matt Bufton and Sabine L. Chidiak. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today we're having a sort of roundtable chat. I'm with Matt Bufton and Sabine L. Chidiak. As you may all know, Matt co-founded the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2006 and has been serving as the executive director since 2010. He's also this podcast's executive producer, and we've done some previous episodes with him, which you can check out. Sabine joined the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2017, and she is the educational programs manager. And of course, she's the producer of The Curious Task, and we've also done a podcast episode together as well. So... Hi, guys. How's it going? Great. Pretty good. Pretty good. You ready to do this? I think so. So, as you all know, today's episode question is, what was 2020 like for liberalism? And does anyone want to start with, like, anything specific that they thought of leading up to this episode? Like, oh, my God, this happened in 2020. I really want to talk about. Or or should I throw some prompts out there? Anybody got some burning things? Let's just start and see how it goes. Well, overall, I think uh, it would be interesting to address the fact that people think that 2020 was horrible for liberty right like that's like the natural idea so a lot of people have like one of the worst years uh and i wonder if if that's true and i wonder what everybody thinks about that what kind of things do you think people are saying out there that make it like oh this is like the worst year? like things you've seen well, other primarily people say. primarily the pandemic and how the government's been treating it but okay. also uh just the last four years of trump and like the last year in particular in the united states have been like for the perception of people i think it's been particularly bad for democracy and liberty. Um, those are, the, I think, the top two reasons why people are, are talking about it more and thinking about 2020 as the year right. that was the worst. So you that's what you say people have been saying. What do you think? Like high level takeaway, 2020? I think it, was, it wasn't great. <laughs> There's certainly some uh, bad points to it, um, but there was also some good points uh, to it. Um, and we're talking about social issues more than I think ever before in my lifetime anyway. In the past few years, it's come to the forefront and we're having serious conversations about it, about police reform, about uh, drug legalization, all these things. Um, and about the power of the presidency and, and centralized power. When uh, I mean, I can't think of a time personally when we, people were talking about the president the way that they do now. And that's a positive thing. Right. They're really questioning him. They're not putting the presidency at, on some sort of pedestal. Um, it, it, that's a good thing. Uh, historically speaking, there's been much worse years, right. <laughs> obviously. Um, you know, this is not the worst year for liberty by a stretch. Um, but there's definitely things that we have to be watchful for and vigilant on. Right. Okay. And now, Matt, over to you. So let, let's do both those parts again, right? So like, what have you seen people saying sort of out there in the ether about 2020 in regards to liberty and liberalism? And then we can end with what you think, too. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think there's a general idea that 2020 is like the worst year ever. Um, I feel like that's actually had a lot of airspace on like social media since about 2016. Whatever year it is, well, this is the worst year ever. They look at Trump. Uh, celebrities who are dying and, and whatever happens. Um, so I think that's actually getting a little bit tired. Uh, that being said, I think 2020 has a good claim as being sort of the worst year like in our memories for people living in a place like Canada or a place like the United States, right? The the pandemic is something that I think none of us thought we were going to live through something like this again. You know, we sort of knew about the Spanish flu uh, and that sort of stuff. And, and a lot of us thought, well, that's not, that's not going to happen again. So from a perspective, of like, you know, the worst year ever take, I think is a bad take because like human history is tens of thousands of years 
of just terrible grinding, poverty, infant mortality, all that sort of stuff. Nothing that we're experiencing compares to that. But in terms of the life experience of the people who we're talking and we're live right now for most of us, and especially those of us uh, in the richer countries in in the world, I I think it's got a got a claim to that. And and for liberty, I mean, there's been some good things. Uh, I think Sabine is right to say there's conversations around abuse of a police power and things like that. They're good. Of course, those conversations are taking place because something terrible happened, right? And so that's a bit of a downside there. And we can hope that maybe there's going to be changes. Um, there's been a lot of this stuff before, right? You know, Rodney King in, in 92, uh, various things that seemed at the time like there was the potential for change and that didn't follow through. And there's been some really bad things for, for liberty too. There are much bigger issues in the world than sort of, you know, government spending and deficits. But I think it is a real issue. What we're looking at in Canada um, and probably also in other countries, what is going to be the fiscal future uh, and what are government programs going to look like in five or 10 or 20 years when the capacity of the government, I think, is really hamstrung by all the spending that's taking place now. And, and maybe that's actually a good thing, right? right? Maybe as libertarians, we think, well, hey, the government's not going to be able to do the things they want to do in 2030 because of the debts that were incurred in 2020. That could be positive. But I think we all also realize there's like better and worse levels of government spending. And maybe what the would be done in 2030 could be better than what's being spent on it now. So I, I mean, I think we're going to have to wait a while to see and be looking back in 5, 10, 20 years uh, and just see what the last lasting effects of 2020 were. I would agree with a lot of what you both said, so I won't repeat most of it. But one thing I'm hearing in both of what you're saying is that there seems to be a lot of potentially good things that have actually come out of 2020. That is to say, like, so Sabine, for instance, you were saying that people are talking about things now that they well, maybe were talking about before, but not to the, either the degree or the, the same level of concern that they may have had in the past. Is, is in, in your view, it's just probably just because we sort of have the confluence of like, you know, on the one hand, what people, many people view as a terrible presidency on the outs now. On top of that, a pandemic, like, do you think it's just basically this sort of crash of factors into one area, you know, again, global pandemic being one of them that's causing a lot of people to really think about things now. Yeah, I think it's one uh, crisis after another. It definitely adds up. You've got the police brutality issue. On top of that, you've got Trump president who's uh, you know doing a lot of bad things on trade, on immigration, on all these important topics. Um, and then you've got also the pandemic. Right. So all these things together sort of come together to form this t- worst year ever idea. Um yeah, it's, it's, a, it's definitely depressing, but I think that it's important to look at the good aspects of it. <laughs> right. there, there are some positive aspects. Um, sadly, as Matt said, like they're coming at the heels of bad things happening, which is, which is not good. Uh, but as long as we use those uh, situations to sort of learn from them and, and have hard discussions that sometimes in, in our society we don't have, then that might be the silver lining. What do you think, Matt, on the, the the sort of potential part of the discussion? Like, I like there's a lot of things, as you say, we can point to that, like, such and such is bad. Oh, my God, this is terrible. And as as you said, and I completely agree, you know, there's, there's been worse years recorded in history. I think a quick look at history tells us that. But in terms of what doors have been opened, what kind of potential we could be heading towards with some of the conversations that have been started and things like that this year. Is that sort of meter on the on the higher end to you now? How do you view that? You know, I think it's really hard to say. I think that with 
a lot of these big issues, especially social issues, there's a number of points when these things, you look back at these things through history, uh, you know, the end of slavery, the end of the slave trade, you know, civil rights, treatment of indigenous people in Canada, you know, women's rights, all of these things. There's you know, various moments and you know there are times before the time when there's a real substantive change that you think might be a time for substantive change. And I think that's the situation that you know we're looking at now, right? So criminal justice reform is something that I think all of us are you know, concerned about, uh, especially in the US, but also in Canada. And uh, and there's a conversation about that, which is great, but there's been conversations like this before. So is this like the tipping point where substantive changes are actually made in 2021? I mean, this happened relatively early in the first half of 2020, right? With right. the uh, the issues in, uh, in states that sort of came to a head. Colorado, I believe, has uh, made some criminal justice reforms, but I'm not sure any other states or the federal government in the U.S. have. I'm not sure there's been much done in Canada either. So is that stuff going to happen in 2021 or is it not? And as with so much of the stuff, I think it's going to be really hard to tell in the moment. We're going to have to look back and see how things did change. Right. What do you think, Sabine? Yeah, I agree. And I think that the conversations really need to turn into action. It's good to have conversations and to have these debates. Uh, and we need to keep the conversation alive. If that doesn't continue and if we don't actually push for change in those, act in those then we squandered a very... Um, a very fruitful opportunity. Since people are talking about it, people are getting serious about these debates. These debates that, that people like that liberals have been having for a really long time, right. others are now having. Others are starting to see the perspective uh, that we've been talking about for a very long time. Uh, this is a great opportunity for us to really uh, move forward on those sorts of topics. Right. Yeah. And again, there's a, all of us have brought up a couple different points that I think we'll get into more specifically in a bit. But before we do, still sticking at sort of the higher level there, um, do you guys think that, and again, I'm not sure what the best way to word this is, but I'll just kind of go into it. So if I stumble, I apologize. But from the point of view that we are dealing with lots of issues in terms of like the systems that exist today, right? So like, you know, we talk about defunding the police, for instance, in police reform, we're talking about that because the police are a certain way they are today, especially in municipalities, right? They're controlled by municipal budgets and municipal politicians, and then it's et cetera. Like there's structures of, that exist that we have to deal with. Do you think sometimes that it's a little uh, too easy for people that might call themselves classical liberals, libertarians, things like that, to sort of just sort of brush all that off and basically they say, oh, it's, it's all screwed up. You know what I mean? Like, it's so big. There, there's, there's, you know, the, a lot of this requires a lot of legwork, a lot of things. Politicians are useless. How are we going to get things done? So in my opinion, I feel like sometimes it's too easy for people to just say that and think like, hey, like, you know, it's, it's, it's too, it's too big. There's no way to do this. Let's just keep talking about it. But, you know, there's no way to actually make these meaningful changes happen. So I'm not saying you guys are saying that. I'm saying sometimes that is sort of an attitude out there. But on the other hand, I'm hearing you guys say basically like, look, there's a lot of potential out there. And one of the main ways we have to keep that potential going is to keep the conversations going. So you guys work at the ILS along with me, clearly revealed preferences wise, you think we're doing something useful. So when you guys encounter people that say things like that, well, it's all screwed up, you know, what are we going to do about it kind of thing? What are each your sort of individual reactions to that? I know you have personal opinions about how far or how big, how if, if big changes can be affected, but but let's start with Matt and say, like, Matt, like, let's say someone comes up to you and says, that's all nice, Matt. This is great. But how are we actually going to change that in the real world? I mean, there's, as we said, 2020 is a big mess, right? To some degree. So 
how do we actually go about dealing with it? What are the first steps? That's, that's a tough question. Um, I'm not even sure what the first steps are. I'm not sure there's a sort of linear order in terms of, you know, a plan that right. progresses over time. I think it's just a fact of, you know, what is your view of, of social change and what can you do? What do you think is most effective? You know, what do you enjoy doing? I, I think is something that people should consider. So at one point in my life, I was involved in sort of partisan politics. Right. Um, I'm pretty cynical about that now and encourage people often not to get involved in that because I think it can be a very frustrating experience that's not that productive. But some people really enjoy that. And if you're someone who really enjoys the political process and getting involved in that, and you have good motives to like change things for the better, and of course that's gonna be a subjective question, right, but right. maybe that's like the right thing for you to do. I'm, you know, I don't feel that way. I feel like having conversations is a big part of that. I feel like, you know, reading books with people and talking about ideas and, and hosting speakers who have things to say about things is an important part of the change right. process. Now, it's not going to change itself on of its own, right? So it's just a question of everybody sort of doing a little part that fits in with their interests, that fits in with their capabilities. And we hope that the issues that we talk about, we're going to see changes on. But of course, we can't promise that. And we can be almost certain that we're not going to see issues, uh, that we're not going to see changes on a lot of the issues that we talk about. We hope some of them will change. And we hope to think that we're a part of that, even though you're never going to be able to look back and say, okay, well, there was this change regarding criminal justice procedure that happened in 2021. And we attribute X percent of it to things that people were doing, right? This project, that project, that's probably never going to happen. So I'm a big believer in, in talking about ideas, reading important ideas, having conversations with people who want to have those conversations. And I think that's a part of the social change uh, process, but it is not in and of itself going to cause really momentous social changes. Right. So like when we reconcile that with sort of like the main thread of our discussion today, which is like what's 2020 like for liberalism, it sounds like we all agree that there's a lot of potential and a lot of conversations that open this year. And you, you're basically saying, Matt, that at the very least one way that we shouldn't drop the ball on all this is to stop talking about it, right? Like we need to keep raising awareness and keep basically people talking about these issues and keep it in their minds, essentially. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's an important thing and it's, it's something that's worthwhile doing and it's not something that everybody wants to do, right? Uh, you know, Sabine and I and you are the types of people who want to read a big, thick old book and then sit around and talk about it for a weekend. And for most people, that sounds really boring. And At least on that subject. Well, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah things have things that they might want to want to talk about. But even, right. I mean, in terms of you know, reading big books and talking about them is not a very popular thing, right? Um, for most people, that's not how they want to spend their free time. But for some people, it is. And so we want to look, you know, the ILS, we look for people who are interested in that. Some of them are professors, some of them are students. That's the market that we're going after. Those are the people we appeal to, the people who want to listen to an hour-long podcast every week where people talk about politics and philosophy and economics, right? It's not for everybody. Our ratings are far lower than The Good Doctor or whatever the most popular show is right, right now. Right. But we, we do our thing. We do uh, – we think it's important. We think it's influential. And we think it's a small part of making the world a better place over time. Right. 
And Sabine, what do you think? I agree, obviously. <laughs> That's why I work at the ILS. Um, but Be I think- careful what you say. Matt's right here. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, I think it definitely feels overwhelming. I don't blame people for feeling overwhelmed, especially in a year like 2020 when things just keep coming at you from every direction. You're just like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. What am I going to do? How could I do anything? Small uh, actions make big changes. I, I really believe that. Um, on the political side, it happens sometimes. Like our friend Peter Jaworski, he's the co-founder of the ILS. He just had a huge win in Alberta. Uh, he worked so hard to get this blood plasma stuff going, uh, and they just introduced this bill, and it passed. Uh, and now you're, you're able to like pay for plasma um, soon, <laughs> not right now, but eventually. So that's the thing that he did, um, and he worked really hard at it. And he had his evidence, he had his ideas all in place, and he. Uh, rallied the right people to get it done, and he got it done. And that's a small change, but it's uh, it's a small thing uh, in the grand scheme of things. But it's a, it makes a big impact on people's lives, um, and it's a big it makes a big impact for liberty in general in Canada. On the other side of things, uh, things that we do uh, when you're talking about ideas, that's really important too because you're going into campuses like we do. We're talking to young people, and we're giving them an alternative to ideas that they might have held for years or have they've heard about for, about from their parents or from their professors. Uh, just offering that alternative uh, opens your mind a little bit to other uh, ideas, other ways of living, um, thinking about really important and difficult issues in a different way. Uh, and that's really, that's that, I think that's a small uh, thing, or not even a small thing, it's a big thing that makes big changes eventually because they're carrying these ideas with them on onwards throughout their lives and it's impacting them in their next jobs and their life decisions uh, and in the right. way that they communicate with people. And how do we, one of the things I want to touch on today, now we can get into a little more specific things, because uh, I think that was a really good tour of some of the high level stuff we want to talk about in terms of 2020 for liberalism. So one thing we keep hearing about, not only in 2020, before this, especially in the last four years, but definitely um, on a variety of issues this year, too, is just this whole idea of like, you know, polarization, right? And we've had Kevin Valley in the podcast before, and he's we've done a deep dive into that stuff. But now let's connect the things we're talking about to that point, right? Like we keep hearing that the world is more polarized than ever, whether it's about vaccinations or whether we should wear masks indoors or, you know, the election uh, that sees Biden coming into the presidency. Now, like whatever the topic is, this is always like a constant underlying theme, or at least the thing we're told is an underlying theme. Again, we all agree that there's potential to talk to people and that we should keep talking to people, raising awareness about things where we can. But how do we reconcile that with this whole idea of political polarization? Maybe we could start by talking about if we each think it actually is worse or maybe it's just the same and in different forms. I'll just generally toss it over, Matt. Take that and run with it. What do you think? Yeah, well, I was a skeptic for a long time on the sort of crisis of political polarization. Uh, so we've been hearing this, I feel like, my entire life, right? Whatever the election is, you know, especially it centers around U.S. elections. You hear it in Canada, too. You know, this is the most important, most divisive election of our time. And at a certain point, it feels like the boy who cried wolf, right? You know, they can't all, I don't think they can all be the most important, most divisive election. So I was pretty skeptical. And, and if you go back to, you know, elections held 100, 200 years ago, you see horrible things said by people about people on the other side. And so that's always been an element. Lately, I've started to think maybe it is actually getting worse. Uh, there's been some uh, some polling data in the U.S. Uh, about people's attitudes to sort of what if they're one of their children were to marry someone from the other political tribe, right. as it were. And it's actually much more contentious than a racial issue. So people are now generally okay with the, the, one of their children marrying someone of another race. And 30, 40 years ago, that was not the case that most people were uh, were okay with that. But it's been replaced by this thing that, it, you know, 
it, the racial aspect doesn't matter, but the political party matters. And it does seem to be the case in a lot of political dialogue. And again, this is especially in the US, though it is, I think, creeping into Canada. And that's, of course, you know, we are affected by a lot of things that uh, that happen down in the US, that it's starting to worry me that I see people who just never seem to have any interaction with people with a different different point of view. And I think that's one of the things that's so important about the work of getting together to talk about ideas is you can do that with people from different points of view and get to understand what it is that why it is that people would have these other points of view different from what yours without agreeing to it uh, with it and just thinking, okay, I understand where you're coming from, even if we disagree. Right. And I worry that a lot of people are not actually having any of those conversations with people who have different political ideas. Yeah, I think that's the last thing you said there's actually very key, right? Because I think like, you know, from from some angles and, and to, to some degree, we can all probably say that, well, like it's not really an issue if someone has like a really strong entrenched conviction to the degree that they just really believe in something. Let's leave it there for now. We'll get too into that. Just say that's what it is. But as you said, but you know, if there's still number one, okay with simply hanging out or being around other people that may bring up uh, points of view or opinions counter to that, that's still a good thing. Or if they at least want to search for groups and people that will challenge their point of view and discuss that out, even if they're, again, very entrenched in their own ideology, at least they're exposed to that. Perhaps that's the key to a lot of what we're talking about too, right? It's not just the fact that people are polarized on certain issues. It's actually the fact that is there sort of that quote unquote marketplace of ideas still very fruitful? Are people actually eager to talk to other people with different points of view or is the uh mental polarization if you will actually uh happening concurrently with what people are literally doing with their time which is staying in echo chambers staying on their sides that kind of thing yeah no i think it's a big concern i mean this is something where we as libertarians have a bit of a advantage on it's really hard to just hang out with other libertarians right there aren't that many of us so i know that i have friends who are more left-wing and more right-wing i'm pretty sure you guys do as well yeah and so you talk with people who have different ideas and you really have to learn how to be good at talking with people about ideas uh, without being angry and bitter and confrontational I think it's a very good point like so like that's i think it's something we might actually all just pass over naturally, but that's even right there is a very important important point, right? If you hear something you just really disagree with, even being able to navigate that conversation and be around other people and just be there without, as you said, running away screaming or running at them screaming, that's that's a skill in of itself and important to civil society. Yeah, and, and skill I think is the right word because it's something that you may need to work on and develop. And so if you are someone more left of center politically and you live in downtown Toronto, you do not have a lot of uh, opportunity opportunities probably to engage with people from a more right-wing point of view and you know, work on that process of civil discussion and, and disagreement and, and conversation and argument. Right. And by the same token, if you live in rural Saskatchewan, you may have trouble, you know, if you're someone of a more right-wing persuasion, you may not have a lot of opportunities to speak to someone from a more left-wing persuasion. And so you end up in a situation where the people with other views are strange people who live in other places and you don't interact with them. And then you don't build up that sort of exercise and routine of having conversations with people who see things very differently than you do. And yeah, I think we'd all agree that that's like a, a problem in general, no matter when that happens. But back to our discussion about 2020 in review, then tying that right in, like, you know, us here at the ILS, we've been working very hard at putting on events for people and creating a forum for people to still get together, albeit virtually. But do, personally, Matt, do, do you fear that this whole idea of lockdown in certain areas and sort of the idea that we're being told by 
a variety of people for health reasons, right? Look, do the essentials, do your routine, work from home if you can, kind of stick to your, your little box, if you will. Don't vary it up for, again, health reasons. But that's what most people are doing right now. And concurrently, they're being fed news headlines and things to be hangry about. So do you think that's sort of a bit of a powder keg formula as far as that sort of like polarization and echo chambering is concerned? Yeah, absolutely. I think perhaps we were on the uh, path to it getting worse already in 2020 before COVID got going. Right. And now it's just gotten worse. I mean, so we have replaced a lot of in-person events that we would have done in a normal year with online events. Right. And we've been pretty happy with the level of interest and engagement and the people who come out to those ideas. But even then, having a talk that's on Zoom is very different than being in person. And that's especially the case with something like our Freedom Week seminar, which is a week-long summer conference. And normally, in a normal year, students would gather in a university campus you know, for an event like this, and there would be talks, but then there would also be discussion at coffee breaks and meals right. and socials and, and free time and all of that sort of stuff. And that doesn't happen. I mean, we put on what we thought was a pretty good online conference, but it's much more a case of, you know, people log on, they they watch a talk, they maybe interact in the chat a little bit, but it's all just about the uh, conversation of the talk. Right. And there's none of that in-person socialization that I think is so important to learning how to discuss controversial, maybe even offensive ideas and do so in a way that uh, encourages civil discussion and understanding rather than hampering it. Absolutely. So being to tie it back up again, you know, liberalism, especially a la John Stuart Mill, the marketplace of ideas, public discourse in the public sphere, this is all very important stuff. I think we'd all, all agree, right? So like specific Specifically in 2020, on, on the back of the kind of some of the things Matt's been saying, do you agree that this has become more concerning now? Like, I mean, we're already living in polarized times. People are already entrenched in their opinions. And now because of the pandemic and things like that, most people, I think it's safe to say, you know, that what they might do is get on an online event or join a circle of friends every now and then on, on a Zoom chat. And other than that, they're doing their routine and watching, like I said, news articles to get angry about. Like, is, is that something that's like worrisome to you? Or how, how do you feel that is? Because we were talking about the potential on one hand before, but then we reconcile that with this potential, potentially more polarizing situation. What are, you, what are your general thoughts on this? Personally, I'm encouraged. Okay, okay, that's <laughs> interesting, yeah. I'm encouraged because uh, students, especially, I mean, I can speak to the experience of young people because I'm working with them because of the nature of my job, but right. with young people, they're still logging on. That's great. I'm really excited that they're still, they, they are in front of their computer screens four hours a day with their lectures and university like talk about zoom fatigue like young people have it right now more mm -hmm. than anyone else i think uh, even people in the workplace like they are doing all their classes they're doing their examinations it's, it's crazy for them and the fact that they're doing all that and still coming to our events it's still showing up for freedom week even though it's on zoom i'm encouraged by that because they want to still hear about these topics they're not just like tuned out completely um they're showing up and that's really encouraging for me uh, and let's not forget this is a temporary we're not going to be doing zoom forever uh, so as long as we still have people interested in our programs and coming to talks on on controversial often controversial or difficult topics and wanting to interact with them even if it is just in the chat or like obviously that's not ideal but they're still talking about it and they're still interacting with each other on it um even at a time when they could just tune out completely right they're not doing that and that's really good and it's temporary and eventually we'll get back into the classroom we'll see them at freedom week again and they'll i think they'll be just as rare and to go as, as they were before. yeah and just to dive into that just a little more like obviously as matt said i, I completely agree like the types of people that are going to come to these sorts of events are the people who at the very least are the kinds of people that want to do that right read something and go to the event or at least take an interest in the subject and go to the event but but it is true and especially my experience with a lot of the people that the ILS does events with that they're not all 
coming with, you know, stacked books of Adam Smith and Hayek and this kind of thing in general. You know, these are people that are interested in learning more, but they're not, I think it's safe to say they're not all just of the same kind of cut from the same cloth, no. at least in terms of uh, the political views they come in with or the things that they're interested in specifically within politics. So I, I think that's a positive aspect in and of itself, right? As you still have people still logging onto these events. There's still that yearning out there to listen to this stuff, even after all this COVID boredom and fatigue. Yeah, even with uh, perhaps uh, rising polarization, we've got right. kids from the right, we've got kids from the left, uh, we've got kids from the center, we've got kids that are libertarians, they're all coming out for our stuff. And that makes me really happy. I think that's a great place to take a quick break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Bufton and Sabine Elchidiak today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTaskAtLiberalStudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Elizabeth Aragona, Janet Bufton, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Bufton and Sabine Elchidiak today. So, guys, I think we did a really good job at the beginning of the episode. We started our conversation about what 2020 is like for for liberalism and and how it's been. Lots to discuss there. A lot of high-level points. And then we kind of went into political polarization. Let's talk about something that's related in the same vein. Political realignment. So there's been a lot of chat about this. Um, Before we get into a whole neoliberalism debate again, Matt, why don't we just... I'm going to allow you to actually take just like a general stab at like set the framework for what we mean by political realignment real quickly in this conversation. Then we'll all have like a general go at it because I think it means a lot of things to a lot of people right now, especially depending what political camp they're in. So when I say political realignment, what does that mean to you coming from a classical liberal perspective anyway? Yeah, well, so my answer is going to be really influenced by uh, some of the writings and speakings of uh, Steve Davies, a uh, past guest on The Curious Task. Uh, and I'm going to make a plug here. He will be doing a online talk for the ILS on January 15th. That's a Friday talks at noon. Uh, You can find information on our website, liberalstudies.ca and sign up for that. Um, I hope you'll join us. I think it'll be really interesting. And what Davies is describing is a uh, sort of loose um, grouping of uh, political uh, factions into alignments that support each other. So for example, for most of the Western world for the past 40, 50 years, you've had an alliance between people who believe in small government and people who believe in traditional sort of family values, right? And for a lot of us, that probably seems natural, but it's not necessarily a natural reason. I mean, there's plenty of examples of very socially conservative but left-wing economic political parties in the past, right? Um, And so Davies uh, is arguing that uh, you know, once every 50 or 60 years, you will get a, a, a big transformative event uh, or series of events in society. And these political alliances will tend to shift. And he thinks we're in the process of that happening right now. So examples are talking about the fact that, say, Donald Trump, a Republican president, and uh, for the past several decades, the Republicans 
conservative people have been allied with um, free trade on issues. But mm-hmm. Trump is, is really skeptical about the value of free trade. So that, I think, Davies would say, is one example of the kinds of shifting that's happening. Um, and so what is that new sort of political landscape going to look like? Uh, Davies has a lot of thoughts on how that might shake out. I'm not going to get too much more in depth than I have just uh, just there. But Sabine probably has some stuff to add to this. So one positive aspect of this realignment is that we're finally focusing on social issues and not solely on economic issues. This is something Steve Horowitz talks about in his very excellent book, A Hayek's Modern Family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe he talks about a little bit on his episode of our podcast um, that it's, it's sort of time for libertarians and liberals to move on from fighting about economics uh, and really... Uh, and really start talking about social issues like the rights of LGBTQ uh, plus community or alongside minority groups who are being targeted. Uh, Because at the end of the day, uh, we ought to be on the side of liberty. uh, And this might give us a chance to reaffirm that and not just on economics, but on other things as well. Um, As much as people like to say social justice is like a left liberal thing or modern liberal thing, um, it's absolutely a classical liberal thing too. Um, Maybe this is our chance to sort of focus on these issues uh, versus focusing solely on economics and and then on that, but of course not leaving behind the discussion on economics. It's very important, uh, but there's new things to focus on now in this realignment. So Matt, picking up on that, what, what do you think at a high level, again, generally, is it is it fair to say that, you know, one thing we could have considered a traditional alliance before was, if you will, the classical liberal lowercase c conservative alliance, mostly based on small government and markets, et cetera, et cetera. And now there's a lot more, as we've been talking about realignment, politically speaking, that again, related to 2020 for liberalism, gives us more opportunities as classical liberals to address, if you will, a bigger breadth of issues that we haven't been able to before. Is that fair to say? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think one thing that we're sort of seeing in 2020 is a new kind of fusionism. So traditionally, fusionism would refer to a sort of alliance between libertarians and conservatives. Right. Um, And so this was popular, you know, certainly during the Reagan years, to a lesser degree in the uh, in the Bush years. Um, and as Sabine mentioned, you know, a lot of this was driven uh, through opposition to communism. And that was why libertarians and conservatives, in some cases, felt they were naturally allied. Um, I think all through that period, there were libertarians who didn't want to be aligned with conservatives, who thought libertarianism was something different. Right. There were not a lot of libertarians, I don't think, who thought of libertarianism uh, as sort of a natural left thing. I mean, Rothbard actually tried this a bit during the Vietnam War, trying to align libertarians with anti-war activism, um, but didn't find it very successful. And something that I think we've seen growing during the four years of the Trump administration is a group of libertarians, and this is in part influenced by people like Brink Lindsay and Will Wilkinson with their libertarian sort of ideas, to a lesser extent, uh, Matt Zwolinski uh, and some of his uh, you know, uh, collaborators with the Bleeding Heart Libertarians uh, Project thinking of libertarianism as something that might align more with the left side of the political spectrum. I think that is still a fairly small group of people, but I think it is sort of a growing one. And I think it will be interesting to see how and if that sticks around uh, during the coming years and whether we are going to see libertarians. And I think this might actually be quite a positive development in terms of libertarianism. If libertarians were generally divided into so three broad groups and some who felt they should ally with the political right, 
some who were unaligned and some who felt aligned with the political left was the way to go. And my appeal, uh, the appeal to me of seeing something like that is the idea that then you are able to work with anybody to do good causes, right? right. And so I think there are issues that we should, as libertarians, work with the political left on. I think there are issues that we should work with the political right on. And I think there are cases where it's a pox on both their houses and we're not going to sign on to any of that. And I think that being sort of political free agents is probably a a useful thing for libertarians to do and having a sort of variety of people with foot, feet in different camps might be a useful thing for that sort of development. Yeah, like I think it's useful to say here that real realignment and aligning with something doesn't mean like if you will, being absorbed by it, right? Like I think we've seen a lot of people, perhaps some of our colleagues or people in our circles, if you will, that whether they align more quote unquote right or quote unquote left, they might display a bit more of a, a reaction, if you will, to, oh my God, like what, what do you mean? Like so-and-so thinks that we could align more with this sort of camp that, you know, for whatever reason they didn't think was a good idea before. But as you were sort of saying, it's not necessarily about saying, oh, uh, liber libertarians or classical liberals or whatever, we're, we're more left now or more right now. It's more about having like your foot in different camps. I think you've said in an article before you've written like anyone who wants to take our ideas is welcome to it so to speak it sounds like that's kind of the route you're going with this again yeah absolutely i mean i think that we should work with anyone who wants to uh, advance good ideas and we should work against anyone who wants to implement bad ideas right and so there are times when i think it makes sense for libertarians to be more with the political left and times when it makes sense for us to be more with the political right and times where again we should not be with either of them but that's a difficult thing to do in terms of, you know, as an individual to step into alignment with one party and then out and then in. Political parties don't work that way. Yeah, like when you cash that partisan check, like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like when you get into a party, yeah, you're yeah, right. yeah it to, doesn't work like that. To, to have credibility within a political party, right. you need to be loyal. And I think loyalty is actually the fundamental principle of politics and how partisan politics works. So if you're thinking of libertarianism as a movement, um, and however, you know, uh, you might define that, but some sort of broad coalition of people with a generally liberal worldview in the proper sense of the word liberal, then I think what you need to have is to have people within that movement who can talk to one side of the political aisle and people who can talk to another side of the political aisle. And that sets up at least the potential, and we don't know how it's actually going to play out, but sets up the potential for the libertarian alliance to endorse some good things on one side and some good things on the other side. And perhaps that way, have some more political influence than a group as small as libertarians normally would. And on that note, I'm going to ask both of you and you know, tread a bit carefully here, be a bit sensitive, not because we don't want to say our opinions, but because the point of this podcast has never been to scream and yell at people and point out names like some other ones out there, which I will say on record, in my opinion, are a complete mess, by the way, you know, in terms of quality. I'm, I have no problem saying that. So with that preface out of the way, on this note, do you think people that have broadly described themselves as either classical liberals, libertarians, what have you, potentially from, as you were saying, these traditional alignments, let's call it the conservative libertarian alignment, ha have they in the past, some of them at least, been a little too either hesitant or reluctant to call out those sort of, you know, poxes on the houses that you've been talked about, Matt, before in some of the alliances? And if so, is this more of an opportunity than ever for people to either correct that or sort of in other people's minds, get with the program, if you will? Like I said, I know we're not going to just start screaming and yelling about this kind of stuff here and pointing out specific people, but 
that's an opinion out there. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And then it becomes, uh, you know, I guess a question of if you're a, you are someone who believes in this fusionist uh, idea, how closely aligned do you think that you as a libertarian, uh, hypothetical libertarian are aligned with, you know, the more conservative people? And some are going to see that as quite close and say, well, you know, even if we have our differences, we don't make them public. I, I'm going to express my doubts to my conservative friends more quietly. Some people are going to be much more vocal. I think that just comes down to an individual sort of thing. Um, but yeah, how, the, how this political realignment weighs out. So I've painted the idea that perhaps you end up with sort of three equal camps. And of course, that is one, one possibility, um, but it's only one. The other possibilities you know, involve more of a libertarian between alignments and the political left, which would be a bit of a new thing. This is some of the stuff that Steve Davies talks about. Um, and of course, there's the potential for the continuation of an alignment between libertarians and, and the political right. Um, and then, of course, there is the libertarianism as its own sort of thing. You know, Both Canada and the US have, uh, have libertarian political parties. Uh, they're not hugely successful, but it's entirely possible to be a libertarian who votes libertarian and not to align with any of those other parties. Do you think that, again, like, and I'm going to speak general here, let's say you have someone that identifies more as like a quote unquote left libertarian and someone who identifies more as a quote unquote right libertarian. These people are going to, from both of their perspectives, basically say, well, there's people from the other camp that are if you will, too much aligned with X, Y, and Z. I'm just going to be ridiculous to make the point. I don't think anyone seriously says, you know, some of those left libertarians, they're outright state communists or something. You get my point and you could think of the vice versa. Based on the discussion of having a political realignment and your experience in the, the broader movement, do you think that's valid in the sense of are there people around that maybe align with that other stuff too much, let's say, and then aren't libertarian? I know we're not going to limit limit tests here. Or alternatively, is that kind of talk much ado about nothing? Will political realignment maybe take care of that stuff? That is to say, if you're a left libertarian shouting at someone and basically saying, you're not a libertarian, you're, you're basically a Republican, get out of here. And conversely, if a right libertarian is saying, you're, you're, not, you're not a left libertarian, you're not that, you're, you're basically just an establishment Democrat. Are these people probably going to sort themselves out back into other political groups or major partisan parties or... Not, not trying to get you to predict the future, but do you think some of this complaining back and forth between factions of libertarianism is sometimes much ado about nothing in the sense it will sort itself out? Well, I, I will make a prediction for the future. I do not think the sort of question of who exactly counts as a libertarian will be resolved anytime in the near future. And not here. Not, not here. <laughs> and, and, and almost certainly not within our lifetimes. Right. Uh, there's always this question, you know, libertarians, you know, love purity tests, love talking about what beliefs must you hold, but everybody has different answers to those sorts of questions. So it's a really difficult thing. And I think that conversation is about trying to figure out along the edges, you know, where do you think of a uh, figure, a political figure like a Rand Paul? What do you think of a political figure like an Andrew Yang to be to pick someone from the left side? Um, and there are some people who think those people are within the libertarian fold and some people who think they're without. Ultimately, there's no one uh, who gets to make the decision to say, I decide who is in and who who is out. So those kinds of conversations, and hopefully they're conversations more than yelling or screaming, but sometimes they're yelling and screaming. That's the process of figuring out where exactly the sort of boundaries of our fuzzy movement are. And to your point, though, to, on some one of the things you're saying before, to put a productive end on this, this sort of point here, is that, as you said, whether or not you want to think of Andrew Yang or Ram Paul as you know, something that libertarian overlaps with or not, again, as you said, let's debate about that on the side. At the very least, there may be potential to say, look, at least these people might be vehicles that we can, you know, 
use to spread our ideas in a certain way. I'm not just saying these two either. There's lots out there, but I'm saying these kinds of people might be more receptive to libertarian ideas than others. And that's still worth it in and of itself, rather than sitting here and figuring out if we should call them libertarians or not. Absolutely. It's all about conversations about ideas. And it's not, I don't think, uh, the project that we're engaged with and is not one of trying to convince everybody that our ideas is right. It's about having a conversation. It's about laying out arguments and principles and theories about the way the world works and the way societies work. And hopefully having that a, a con productive conversation, you know, obviously I would like to win some people over to my point of view and, and change some minds, but that's not the principal activity. We're looking to learn how to live together, how to have a more prosperous and flourishing society and bringing more people into that conversation, whether they come through the world of politics or whether they come through the world of ideas and academia. Either way, I'm really happy to have them in the conversation. So Bean, anything to add to what Matt was just saying? It's true that sometimes they go a little too far and they start defending more conservative ideas or more left-leaning ideas that don't really sound libertarian to you. My advice is always just err on the side of liberty. Like if you're wondering about how to feel about something or how to think about something, what's the what's the thing that you think is going to make the world a little bit freer? That's the way that you should be going on when you're thinking about things that might be a little bit fuzzy. All right. For the last little bit of our episode here, guys, let's uh, shift gears into the uh, the pandemic. Now, we touched on this throughout the conversation and we talked about it at the very beginning of our episode. Right. But let's talk about it exclusively here. So um, both of you at the beginning alluded to the fact like, look, you know, pandemic's obviously terrible. But when it comes to government action and social action, there's been some good things that have come out of the whole pandemic and some bad things. Sabine, your big word was potential. There's a lot of potential that's been opened up in terms of public discussion. So let, let's talk about that now. So let's start with Sabine this time. Sabine, you want you can take it whatever way you want. You're talking about some good things that you're alluding to there, some bad things. Maybe we'll start with the good. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the pandemic is a terrible thing <laughs> to happen to society uh, in terms of the, the health level. People are losing their lives. They're getting sick. Uh, long term sicknesses uh, and short term issues are happening. It's, it's a terrible thing that's happening. Um, and I, I'm really glad that we're at the time of recording this. We were, were on the brink of, of bringing in a vaccine to Canada uh, and the vaccine's already started uh, being distributed yeah, in the UK, and that's exciting. Uh, and that's due to innovation and uh, organizations coming together, making this sure this happens. Uh, they got it out as fast as they possibly could, and that's great. Uh, some things more locally that that I think are positives from the pandemic is just rethinking regulatory issues. It's so important that um, we're, we're seeing that you know if restaurants are able to sort of expand their seating areas, nobody's going to die. Like the patios open uh, in a different sort of place, like they're opening their patios more, they're taking up space to do that, uh, maybe non-traditional spots and things like that. That's fine. Everything was fine when that happened. Society did not crumble. Yeah, and, um, and just to add some context to what you're saying, that's because there are often regulations yes, in lots cities of bylaws. that like explain how mm -hmm. much patio area you can have and things yeah, like that. Yeah, and right? in relation to that, the right. idea that we should be able to drink in public uh, or we can deliver alcohol from restaurants that they can deliver alcohol. This is we've uh, we're starting to loosen that thing, those sorts of things up, and society isn't crumbling before us. Um, nurses are able to work wherever they want without provincial restrictions. Uh, like they're they're it's they're freer to do so it's not completely solved that issue but like now they're thinking about it more we're we're realizing that if that happens if they're able to cross borders virtual borders society is not crumbling if that happens in fact it's helping society that we're deregulating these things making them easier to do uh distilleries being able to like produce hand sanitizer i'm talking about like small things like that 
these things are fine. They're banned to do it from do it before. Now that there's a crisis, they're able to do it. Things are okay. Uh, some things we can work on, uh, sort of opening up the market to more competition in healthcare. Uh, we're seeing people need that uh, those options to to talk to a doctor in their house because they don't want to leave their house. Uh, options uh, there are those options that you can pay for. Uh, it's not like hundreds of dollars. It's not a lot of money. You can pay. You can see the doctor right away, and he can tell you what's going on, or she can tell you what's going on. That's great. Um, and society's not crumbling. In fact, it's it's helping society. Uh, loosening regulations that stop immigrants from working in certain industries. For credential recognition these are all things that we have to like really push a button on because uh if if things had been solved if that those regulatory issues had been solved before the pandemic we would have been much better off a much more responsive and entrepreneurial in our response to the pandemic because uh for credential recognition is an issue if, if people don't know about this it's really important uh when you come to canada you're ba you're barred from different guilds and, and and organizations from practicing this thing that you've been doing for your whole life that you went to right. university for uh, uh, that you have accreditation in um, and they it's sort of like random amounts of time like you can't do it for three years you've got to do this one extra course you know uh, these things are stopping doctors and nurses from doing their job and helping people in the pandemic when we need that when we're in a crisis situation right so now we're realizing that hey like you know during a time of crisis lifting some of these regulations are good to help the crisis so what you're basically saying is hopefully we can continue that conversation yeah. make people realize maybe that's good all the time and we've been told for so long by different actors in society that that if we do these things, society will crumble. Right. Or if we do these things, people will be sort of drunk in the streets or whatever, right. like myth you've been right. told. If the Harding Crown over there yeah. can put more seats outside, <laughs> it's just going to be drunks yeah. everywhere. And it's well, just gonna, society's going to crumble. We had a crisis. We were forced to test it. Right. And your theory is wrong. As it's you, fine. I, I like what you said at the beginning. As you said, it turns out putting more seats outside and allowing certain restaurants to have more patio square footage, the world did not end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's good. Matt, general thoughts on pandemic. Good, bad. Somewhere in between. Well, there's a lot of individual things. Um, you know, overall, obviously, bad situation. Uh, what are some good things that might come out of it? I mean, Sabina's touched on uh, alcohol reform, and people who know me know that alcohol reform is something I'm pretty passionate about. I think we should have, in Ontario particularly, but in many jurisdictions, a lot more choice and ability to uh, purchase the kinds of things we want in the places we want and in the ways that we want. And that is actually perhaps the one thing that I'm really confident on is going to be done well, right? That we've seen uh, loosening up of the laws and the government here in Ontario is committed to making this permanent. So that's that's a win. It's a pretty small win compared to all of the bad things that have happened, but that's at least one. It's sad that a pandemic had to force that hand, but here we are, I guess, right? Right, right. Well, a lot of people from Milton Friedman to Naomi Klein uh, would have pointed out that a crisis is what results in government change, right? And right. That's what causes it. Um, interestingly, you know, Friedman would say that the crisis gets government to grow. And, uh, and so it's a tool of you know, big, the big state. And Naomi Klein would say the opposite. She would say, right, you have a crisis and the government cuts. And so it's the neoliberals who are able to take advantage of the crisis and get what they want. So everybody thinks, I, seemingly, that a crisis brings about the things that their political opponents want. Um, but some other things that I think could be good, uh, we've seen what is a pretty rapid uh, vaccine uh, development and approval. Um, something that I just recently learned is that uh, one of the vaccines that's about to hit the market was developed in two days. So it was a, hmm. a weekend process to come up with the blueprint for how to do the vaccine. Um, and now they've been spending about 11 months at this point 
making sure that it was safe. They were confident giving it to people that it was effective, of course. It can't right. just be safe. It's, it's got to protect you against uh, the, the virus. Um, so that all happened really quickly and was brought to market incredibly quickly for, for a virus, uh, for a vaccine. So I'm hopeful. I don't know if this will happen or not, but it would be nice if this meant that in the future, vaccine development were to go that much more quickly. And part of that is just a scientific knowledge process, but part of it is also the regular regulatory side of getting a regulatory regime that can react more quickly. And that's not only a matter of vaccines, right? All pharmaceuticals uh, have a very lengthy approval process. And in some cases, you know, with certain diseases, right. people are dying, you know, year after year after year, while a cure that turns out to be effective is making its way through the pipeline. Absolutely. So if we can speed that up, I think that will be great. So in other words, if this event has given a lot of the health authorities in various different countries a reason to get their ass in gear and make an approval process more efficient, yet still safe, perhaps we can do that when it's not a pandemic as well. Precisely. And it's interesting you mentioned health authorities because that's going to be my third thing that I mentioned in terms of perhaps we will get some uh, some improvement out of this. I think that potentially a, a really positive thing uh, to come out of COVID will be the lack of faith in some public health institutions. And that probably strikes people as a bit of an odd thing to say. Um, I'm not saying it in the terms of like, we should never trust the experts. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, we have a whole episode about that people should go listen to. Ex exactly. <laughs> but, but I'm thinking in terms of how some of our public health authorities want to focus on the things that are not supposed to be their areas of concern, right? So we had the SARS uh, crisis in, in 2003. Right. Um, and a lot of time uh, since then has been spent by groups like the World Health Organization focusing on on things like vaping is a big one, right? They're really concerned with fighting vaping, getting less people to vape. Now, I would say vaping is actually a much safer alternative to smoking. Oh, absolutely. So if I were in a public health position, I would say, you know, hey, it's, it's perhaps better not to do anything, but as a replacement for smoking, which is what it mostly is, vaping is a huge public health success. Instead, the WHO spent a lot of money focused on that and not focusing on general pandemic preparedness. And if they'd done that, then I think we would have been in a better situation when it came to responding to COVID. So what I'm hopeful going forward is people will look at some of these big public health authorities and push back on some of the sort of nanny state stuff they want right. to do. Stop worrying about how well cooked my hamburger is, how many drinks I have a week, whether I choose to smoke or not smoke. The Ooh. flavors of vape juice. Exactly. Right. Those are all come down to my personal preferences and decisions. And I don't think a public health authority has much to say about that. But when it comes to things like preparing for a potential global pandemic. If there's one thing, if they need to exist, that you want them to do. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, and so perhaps, you know, in, in an ideal libertopia, we would get rid of them all together and we would have private actors uh, filling that role. And I, I hope to see a day where that happens, but I probably won't. So at least on a realistic process, I'm hopeful people will be a bit more critical about looking at what those public health authorities are saying and recommending and think, is this an appropriate area of, uh, of involvement for those public health authorities? Right. So it strikes me sort of like, it's, I guess it's, like, it's not a genius thing. It's an obvious point, but it's interesting that as we're talking about this, that especially based on the things that you've just been saying, the kinds of things you've just been saying that all of us now have sort of like this base level experience we can point back to right in Canada, right? Like like kind of the, the issue you're saying about the health authority, right? Like regardless of what political stripe someone's coming from, regardless of what perspective they're coming from, it's like, well, you can say to somebody, well, you also live the pandemic too. And on this political issue, would you rather A, them be spending money on vape juice awareness or B, 
preparing for the next X, Y, and Z or whatever the issue is. I think it kind of creates some sort of like common ground that we can all talk to people about when we're trying to, you know, have these conversations about political issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then in terms of some bad things, I mean, I think the the debt and the spending that have come out of this uh, pandemic, I mean, especially in Canada, uh, but more broadly, I think this generalizes to most countries is a real concern. Um, and uh, there's a lot of commentary that sort of says, well, Canada, you know, we were in relatively good fiscal shape. And by the standards of you know, world governments, we were in relatively good fiscal shape. The problem is that people are acting as if they can just ratchet this down. You know, once we get to whatever time next summer or, or maybe next fall, the vaccine is being sort of distributed. Everybody wants it. Right. And, and the pandemic is sort of solved. Trying to figure out how to scale down government spending is going to be a huge problem. Uh, and if they're not able to do it, then debt and deficit in this country are going to really spiral out of control, I think, and cause really serious problems for many years to come. So that's a problem. Um, I also worry about the sort of restrictions on trade and travel that uh, that we might see. You know, I view globalization as in almost all cases an unmitigated good. Um, obviously, uh, travel has almost ground to a halt uh, yeah, yeah. You know, over the past uh, seven, eight months. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how well that comes back. I suspect there will be sort of a lot of um, you know, reluctance and suspicion about traveling. Airlines are going to be in horrible financial shape. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, and also, I worry about uh, the effects on uh, global trade, both in terms of disruptions that have happened that are just a result of demand, uh, but also a result of politicians who see this as an opportunity to demand that we have institutions that just make whatever it is in our country because we can't rely on anyone else. Right, um, right. And these sort of security concerns are the things that are used for protectionism. They reduce trade. They reduce the size of the market. And especially in a country like Canada, but in all countries, we will be poorer off if we try to make everything ourselves rather than taking advantage of great things like trade and the division of labor. Right. I mean, like a lot of people joked about Donald Trump talking about Canadian steel and aluminum as a security risk, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, a lot of those people laughing might want to make sure that when the next discussion comes up that isn't about steel and aluminum, they might be on the lookout for some of that own type of thinking creeping into their minds, right? Yeah. I mean, and to pull on a thread going back to our discussion of the political realignment. You know, this is a case where the populist right and some people on the left have quite an alignment, right? Absolutely, yeah. Should we buy a lot of goods from China? Well, I think that both, you know, Donald Trump's populist right wings and Canadians on the left, like people like Maude Barlow, are really skeptical about this idea of globalization, of trade, of importing goods from other countries. Um, and although they may seem like political enemies on at least that issue, but also some others, I think that they do agree with each other. And so for those of us who believe in you know, open borders, both for people and goods to cross them, we're going to be fighting, I think, on the left and the right in years to come to make the case for a more globalized, more cosmopolitan, more open world. We think it's really important, but it's not going to be just a given thing because people are going to see appeal in arguments that we should sort of shut down and close up. Yeah, we'll add to that that insularity leads to a lot of xenophobia, too. It's going to be very difficult. It's going to this is definitely going to affect my prediction is it will negatively affect perceptions of immigration, right. perceptions of the of outsiders. Um, and if that insularity continues, that's going to be really bad news for not just um, on the on the humanitarian aspect where we need to bring people in like refugees um, to ex escape horrible situations, but also it's going to be terrible for the economy because uh, Canada's economy needs immigrants um, and we need immigrants to come here and be business owners, be entrepreneurs um, and just be. So <laughs> if we don't, if you don't have that and if there's like 
a lot more regulation on that, or there's going to be um, extra double, triple, quadruple checks on everything. Uh, and if the, the public perception, more importantly, uh, is is more negative on immigration, that's going to become more difficult, and it's going to be a net negative for the country. Right. One more thing for both of you guys before we move on to a couple of wrap up things. Um, I mean, go figure. One of the issues that we're all sort of you know passionate about here is like how people learn and education and things like that. I think we've all sort of had conversation between ourselves uh, privately here, but I think I'd like to you know, echo some of that here on actual record so other people could hear our thoughts too. But um, we've all been talking a lot about what's been happening in education during the pandemic too, right? I think like, you know, there's, um, you know, public schools in Ontario, for instance, uh, are, are back online now and they're dealing with the, the realities of pandemic. But at that sort of beginning phase, the March, April, May phase, especially when the world was really scared about a, a variety of things, including what would a post-pandemic uh, uh, public school system look like, a lot of interesting conversations cropped up. I saw a lot of news articles in the States, for instance, where a lot of parents were taking education to their own hands. Uh, so, some people were simply just rethinking what the public school itself should look like. So they weren't saying, let's get rid of public schools, but they were rethinking how people could go about those sorts of things. Uh, Sabine, we'll start with you. What are your general thoughts on that? Do you think it's a positive thing that people are talking about education overall again? Yeah, that's definitely, I should have added that to my positive list of the pandemic. Yeah. It's, it's it's also forcing people to think of uh, education alternatives, which is always a good thing. Right. Uh, you know, following a standardized education system is not for everybody. And the faster we understand that and accept that as a society, the better off children will be uh, and young people will be. So I think that's really great. Um, on the university level, I'm not so sure. We'll see. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, should, I should clarify. Let's stick to the easy <laughs> okay, stuff good. for this yeah, conversation. Yeah, Let's good. talk about K-12, leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. K-12, definitely. Yeah. Alternatives are always yeah. a good thing. Options are really a good thing always. Right. So more options uh, equals more freedom, and that's a good thing. I think it's fair to say that before 2020 as well, like um, not everybody, but a lot of people would have looked at anybody interested in alternatives to you know uh, public schools, whether it's homeschooling or sending your kid to some cool outdoor like forest school or whatever the case may be. A lot of people might have looked at that as, you know, kind of weird. Like yeah. it's off mainstream. Why would you do that when you have a public school? Yeah. I think at least that is sort of shifted now. I don't think you're looked at as very weird to be looking at uh, looking into alternative schooling methods for your ch child or thinking of different ways that they can get a, an education or even what an education is, is defined as. I don't think uh, it's as weird as it once was now that 2020 has sort of happened and is almost behind us to be thinking of those things. I agree. And I'm excited to see what educational entrepreneurs come up with to fill those demands uh, in the future. I think that's going to be really fun to watch. Absolutely. Matt, what do you think on that note? While I love this topic, I did have this down on my list of good things that might come out of the pandemic, but in the interest of time I didn't talk about it earlier, I'm very happy to talk about it now. Uh, I think that a lot of people are frustrated with the government uh, school model, and I think especially in that sort of K of the 12 space, improving the educational system in this country, but in, in other countries and other jurisdictions is one of the most important issues for people interested in a liberal society. Um, we have this monopoly on one of the most important things, and everybody agrees that you know, K-12 education is one of the most important things happening in society. And the monopoly, I don't think, is serving its you know customers uh, very well. So I have family and friends with uh, children in public school, government schools, and, uh, and children in private schools schools, uh, and uh, almost overwhelmingly, 
the families uh, with children in government schools are unhappy with the way they've responded to the pandemic. And it's pretty positive amongst those private schools. And I'm not going to say that's uniform across the board, but it's certainly a trend that I've seen. I think people are looking at uh, alternatives, as you say. I think people are open to alternatives in a way they perhaps haven't been. Um, I've got one friend uh, with two sons uh, who are sort of primary school age, and uh, and they have just put them on uh, OutSchool, which is a great website, great resource for any parents who are looking for educational resources to teach kids. And she's wondering, and these kids went to a very good school beforehand, but she's seeing how well they're doing with this independent learning and they can pick a module that interests them and, and pursue that. And she's wondering whether she will even send her kids back to school and then trying to figure out, because she's got a career, how that's going to work if uh, if they decide not to send the kids back to school. So I think there's a huge potential for a shift in the education space as a result of the pandemic. Whether that actually comes through and that promise is realized or not, I don't know. I think that's another thing. We're going to have to wait five or 10 years to have any idea. Right. I think even more openness or more room for, as Sabine was saying, for the, the, you know, the market, the entrepreneurs to sort this out, or even just parents to make more decisions, even if we don't revolutionize revolutionize the system overnight. I think nudging it in the right direction is at least still a big win. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that pretty much take, takes up the time we allotted for the main discussion today. Um, I know, Matt, you didn't want to let us go today in our big discussion without forcing us to all answer or give our opinion on a, a question that's almost very, well, I guess I'll just say it's, it's almost impossible to answer, but you're going to make us do it anyway. So that's okay. What was the challenge you put to us that you wanted us to do? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's our, it's our last episode of the year. We're looking back on the year. And I think that uh, no year end wrap up episode will be complete without us talking about some of our favorite episodes. Um, now, uh, I want to say that, you know, we think that we've done a pretty good job on this podcast and done a lot of great episodes. So I know that for all of us, picking just one episode as their sort of favorite uh, was a was a really tough thing. But uh, I'm happy to go first. And I will say that if I had to pick just one of all of the episodes um, that I think were so great in 2020, uh, my favorite is probably going to be episode 40 with, uh, with Pete Betke. Uh, Pete's a, a friend, but also an amazing economist with a real interest in things like politics and philosophy. Uh, anyone who knows Pete will not be surprised to know that episode went a little bit longer than than the, the scheduled time, um, but it is <laughs> yep. full of fascinating facts. Uh, the discussion is what is the curious task of economics? So in some way, this is explaining what, you know, the motivating force behind this podcast and the name for it. Um, and I think it is one of the episodes that I would point someone to if they were looking to sort of dive into this podcast and, and try and figure out uh, what it's about, whether it's something that they're interested in. So my plug for, uh, for episode of the year uh, goes to episode four. 40 with uh, Peter Batke. Um, well, I think, I mean, I'm obviously biased. I'm the producer of this <laughs> podcast. I think all of our episodes were amazing. And we had some amazing, really interesting, really fun people on the podcast in 2020. Um, but if I had to choose one, I think I'd go with Jacob Levy's episode on civil society. Uh, what, let me see what the, how should liberals think of civil society? That's the title. Um, I thought that was really great. Um, not just because uh, personally I'm really into talking about civil society, but also because it's a really interesting topic for liberalism in general. Uh, this tension between pluralism and rationalism and, and oppression from within a group and oppression from uh, the state and all of that. Uh, I think it's really interesting. It also covers a lot of other ideas um, that uh, I find interesting. And, and it really has to do a lot with uh, topics like immigration, with topics like uh, the welfare state, uh, and so many other interesting ideas. And I really encourage you to listen to that episode. It's really great. And it's always just really fun to listen to Jacob Levy talk about liberalism. Oh, and it's episode 29. For me, I'm going to 
the, my, the preface is going to be exactly what you guys said. No, like in all honesty, I've had a really great time hosting the, the curious task. I, every episode I've loved e- equally, but for different reasons, every guest is very different. Obviously, and the topics they cover are different. So I've enjoyed studying for the podcast, putting together questions, working on the script with Sabine. And, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's just been a really, really great run. So I think we've been very happy with 2020, but all the episodes too, even before 2020. But as far as 2020 is concerned, um, if I had to pick one for a couple of reasons, including a couple of personal reasons, I'm going to go with episode 60, which is what is neoliberalism with Eric Schlazer. Um, I have to say that one, not, not yes, because of the content in it, but a couple of other specific reasons off podcast. Number one, this has just happened to be a topic that I was really into before we even thought of doing an episode on. I was reading a lot about it. So having that line up with a lot of the things I was personally exploring in my studies was was great. So it kind of all culminated with that episode. Uh, we also made a, a pit stop at, you know, in Montreal at a certain point in time earlier, talked a bit with Jacob Levy about the topic too, as part of some of the things I was doing, learning about the topic myself, had a nice chat with him. That was great. It's a, it's a topic that just permanently upsets Matt Buffton. So that always makes me extremely <laughs> happy. It's just, it's just all these great things. It was released in September. It's episode six. 60, but it was like Christmas to me for all those reasons. So especially the last one. So I really enjoyed that one if I had to pick one. And I'll just weigh in there, Alex, to say you're absolutely right. The The term neoliberalism drives me to distraction. It's a source of, of great frustration for me and, and also for some others. Uh, the episode is great. I, uh, I highly encourage anyone to listen to it. It's, it's a fascinating conversation, um, but I still don't think it provides us with one shared understanding of what neoliberalism is. And so as a term, I still think it's got a long way to go. But perhaps that episode is part of the project of rehabilitating the term neoliberalism. There you go. Maybe it is. And maybe maybe we'll actually have to show Eric that exact clip of you saying that to get him upset enough to come back on because then you'll be like, yes, we got to go further. So I, I think that's it, guys. I, I hope you enjoyed the chat. Here is our first roundtable episode. Everyone listening, I hope if you enjoyed too, honestly, send us a note and let us know if you want to hear more of this kind of stuff. We thought it was pretty fun. So I guess if, if you guys are good, we can end it there. Absolutely. It was, a, it was a pleasure doing this. I want to thank you guys for all your hard work over the podcast over the uh, the past uh, year and, and even beyond that. Uh, I have the executive producer title, but anyone listening should know the real work on this podcast is done being done by Sabine and Alex. Uh, we hope it's uh, brings some happiness to you over the year, uh, especially as you may not have been able to get out as, as much as you might uh, might like to. Uh, I really enjoyed this roundtable format, and uh, I suspect it won't be the last one we'll do. But yeah, let us know. If you liked it, uh, maybe you like this, maybe you like the traditional interview style better, and we'll see how long it is before we come back and do another one of these. This is great. I'm really looking forward to seeing which guests we have uh, and interacting with our wonderful listeners over the next uh, year in 2021. Everyone, you've been listening to The Curious Task. I was speaking with Sabine, El Chidiak, and Matt Buffton today, and I, as always, am Alex Aragona. See you next time. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task, and thank you very much, whether this is your first time or you've been following us for the entire year of 2020. We're looking forward to meeting up with you again in 2021.